This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I am so excited for all of you to meet our next guest. But before I ask Tracy to introduce herself, I want to give you one line from her debut novel. Clearly, the road to becoming a we was not a honeyed one. And we're going to be talking a lot about voice because Tracy does a very, very cool thing in her debut novel, Night Wherever We Go. But Tracy, before we get too deep into voice, I set you up at that line for a reason. Would you introduce yourself in the book, please? Sure, sure. First, thank you for having me. Um, I love the podcast and I love the conversations that you have with authors. Um, so I'm so overjoyed to be here. My name is Tracy Rose Hayden. Um, I'm introducing my first novel, uh, Night Wherever We Go. I guess a little bit about me is I'm from Chicago, but I'm currently living in LA and I've been here for a year and I'm trying to figure out LA, which is a very strange place. Um, <laughs> Night Wherever We Go is my debut novel. Um, it's about a group of enslaved African-American women brought to the Texas frontier by a struggling farmer and his wife in the early 1850s. Uh, when the land doesn't yield as expected, the plantation owners turn their attention to the women's fertility as a means to turn the farm around. Uh, the couple hires a stockman and tries other methods to try to impregnate them. And the women wage a covert rebellion using herbal abortives to control the birth rate and maintain some degree of autonomy over their lives and their bodies. And the voice. You use the first person plural for a great portion of this novel. And I want to say, I'm going to hold up my galley, which I don't often do, but <laughs> I destroy galleys, just to be clear. Anyone who listens to the show knows that I destroy galleys. Anyone who knows me in real life knows I destroy galleys. Because I just, I get that deep into the story. And literally, there is at least one line on every single page that is just gorgeous. And yes, the subject matter is hard. I'm not going to pretend that it's not. But the collective voices of these women. Can we just start there? Can we just start with these women and this voice that you found for them collectively that is just hypnotic and amazing? And I was actually annoyed when the book ended because I wasn't ready to leave it. <laughs> and again, we are talking about difficult subject matter. I'm not, you know, I'm not dismissing that the subject matter is difficult, but the writing is extraordinary. And this is the thing that I really want to start with is the voice. How did how did you find this voice for these women? Thank you for saying all of that. Oh, my God. Um, the we I will say the we came late. Like I had an early draft of this novel that was just kind of a first that, that was kind of a normal third person. Okay. Um, and then later on, I, had, I moved to Texas and I kind of basically like broke the novel. Like I like threw it out, started over, broke it open. And like I think part of my anxiety is about writing, quote unquote, another slavery novel. Um, was about finding ways to destabilize it. One of the things I was I started trying to play with was some of the structural pieces, but also trying to pay, play with the voice and the way we entered it. I think one day I was playing, or you know, I was just trying to attempt thing. I was rewriting the first chapter over and over and over again. And I have no problem saying that one of my one of the novels that I love is Julia Asuka's Buddha in the Attic. Like that's one of those novels read and read and what I remember reading. Like I think they Greta published the first chapter of one of the chapters of it. And I remember reading the chapter and it was the first time I had ever done something where I read the chapter in one sitting and immediately started it over and read it again. Yep. <laughs> and when the whole novel came out, I was just in love with that novel. And it's one of those things like, like I have on my shelf with a couple of the books that I feel like are, you know, the companion books when you're writing your, your book. And I was like, let me take a stab at something here. And like, there's something about this we that I'm just super interested in. And when I started playing with it, there was just something about it fit, especially because I was so interested in 
the women as a group and being treated as a unit, even when you're strangers and you're not necessarily always happy with each other. (laughs) And so I was interested in this tension between like having community and friendships, but also having tension within that community, having autonomy and individuality, being treated as a, but being treated as a unit. Um, and wanted to explore kind of the tensions of both those things. And the we just seemed like a really interesting way to do that. Yeah. And then after that, it just felt like it, it just, it just had a power of its own at that point. Oh yeah. So I've read the book twice now. And the first time I read it very quickly because I was just so caught up in the voice that I did not want to put it down. And then the second time, obviously you go back and you're reading for, you know, structural things and and the things that I can talk to you about. But the first time, just as a straight through read, I could not believe how attached I got and how quickly to these women. And I love Buddha in the Attic the way you love Buddha in the Attic. I think that Otsukuna, I mean, all of her novels are great, but Buddha in the Attic, she does a very similar thing with voice. And you're just like, how do you do this? How? It's because it's not ever cloying. It's just, Mm -hmm. of course, of course, these women are in a terrible situation. And yet, they still need each other, whether they like each other or not. Because, I mean, certainly Harlow and his wife, who they call the Lucys, short for <laughs> Lucifer, the plantation owner and his wife, I, they come up against some challenges. They're not particularly well-funded. They're not particularly well-thought through. Like, this plan is not thought through in any way, shape, or form. They're just like, we're going to go make our fortune in Texas, and they have no idea. And Texas is one of those places that sort of lords over the imagination, right? I mean, mm-hmm. one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you and and read your first novel is because Kese Lehman put it on my radar a while mm-hmm. ago because he was really excited about it. And he was like, well, this is a new way to talk about Texas, which is how he blurbs your book. And I was kind of like, well, how is there possibly a new way to talk about Texas? How is there a new way to talk about slavery, the way you're talking about mm-hmm. deconstructing, you know, a pretty classic kind of storytelling and you do it you do it this is this is the texas that is like rough and hard scrabble and it will break people mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. not in the ways that they expect so he, you just mentioned earlier you left chicago you end up in texas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how'd you end up in texas i ended up in texas um i mean i would say chicago by way of dc new york yeah, yeah. And, then, and then and then and then i ended up uh in texas because uh, i went back to grad school Mm-hmm. And I had been working on a draft of the novel in New York in the evenings, like during the kind of like second street and a bunch of other workshops and stuff. But I just felt like I needed more time. Like I was working during the day and advertising and kind of, you know, writing in the evening. And we sat down and we talked about the novel, talked about like what the overall part of the overall book was about. And he said, hey, I didn't know that's what your novel was about based on the based on the first two chapters. And I was like, ah. <laughs> and I think as I started thinking about it, I was like, OK, he's, a- he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. Um, and I think at that time, I would say I was scared to grapple with like some of the really dark stuff of the of of it of it of really getting yeah so like so all that stuff was in the background and it was like okay you need to figure, you need to figure out how to put this in the, in the foreground so I just wanted more time so um so I applied to grad school and I ended up um at the Missioner Center and and I will say to be honest like the first draft of the novel was placed in Georgia because that's where my family's from um and so that was placed like you know as a kid I went and I just read dirt roads and the small towns and I had experienced that yeah. that south and then when I moved to Texas for grad school, I was like, Texas is such an interesting place. And especially as an outsider, it's like, it's one of the places that still has a very kind of strong regional identity. They still really like believe in themselves as an independent nation. <laughs> like that seven years of the Republic of Texas really still lives for them and like a real kind of like in their ethos and, and in so many different ways. And so 
I was just struck by how many, how many, how many myths I think I had in my head about Texas that while I was there that I was like, oh, this is not what this is at all. And then I think also just being curious about the question of like slavery in Texas, where it's like, sure, Texas is a huge part of the Confederacy, but we never think of it as part of the empire in that way. Um, when it was a huge part of the empire. Um, and I, I feel like there, there are Texas historians that can better speak to this, but but just some of the, so many of the battles around the Texas Revolution and Mexican-American War are about this like moving of empire and like and slavery and having more space to have, you know, to like, you know, grow more cotton. And once I got to Texas, I was just, I got inspired by the place. And then when I started rereading more about like Texas and this connection to slavery, there were just more and more things that kept showing up. And I was like, oh, this is so interesting. This is just, this is a gift. And I hadn't expected it. It's a gift I hadn't expected at all. Yeah, actually, I was thinking a lot about Cynthia Bond's novel, Ruby, and also Attica mm. Locke's novels that she set in sort of Eastern Texas, because the landscape is so alien. I'm, you know, I spend a lot of time in Los Angeles and New York, and I grew up in Massachusetts. And so, like, I'm used to cold places where there's a lot of gray and a lot of rocks, but not scrubby pine trees. Like, there's scrubby mm-hmm. pine trees at the beach, but not like that. It's the landscape is entirely, entirely different. And if you start to think about the desert too, like Texas has desert, Texas has, you know, mountains and river. It's wild Wild. what that place is like and who actually manages to live there and how. And I think the Harlows were not, I don't think they did their homework. (laughs) I think they didn't have a clue. I think they didn't have a clue. and. I mean, certainly I do. I have to say, I feel a little for Lizzie, um, Harlow's wife, because she's just she's pregnant all the time. She doesn't like being pregnant. She's having a hard time breastfeeding. Like all of it just sounds hard. And she finally hires a wet nurse and her husband's like, what are you doing? That's you can't do that. And she's like, yes, I can. I have my own money. I can do this. And I feel for her, but it doesn't make her more compassionate. It doesn't make her more humane. She's mm-hmm. still cannot connect with Sarah and Alice and Lulu and Nan and Patience, who I love. And wait, who am I missing? Oh, no, I'm missing something. Oh, Junie. 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 Oh, Junie, who grew up with Lizzie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're going to stay away from spoilers in this conversation, but I think it's kind of important to talk about Junie and Lizzie's relationship because I have to say that it was hard. It was hard to read. Would you set that up for listeners, please? Sure. Um, Junie is uh, uh, an enslaved woman who grew up with Lizzie's family. And so her her mother and her father were owned by um, Lizzie's family. So they have a familiar relationship um, where her um, mother was uh, basically a wet nurse for Lizzie and her siblings. Um, and I think the thing that struck me about exploring those relationships was trying to explore the idea of like how intimate parts of slavery were. Um, I think we think about them kind of very separate where it's like, okay, the houses of the enslaved people are like a mile, two miles out back. And then here's the, you know, Greek revival plantation house. But there are ways in which these spaces were so intimate. Someone's in your house, someone's wet nursing your child, someone is mothering your child, someone is cooking your food every day. Enslaved people slept in the same bedroom as their, as their owners because, you know, they were supposed to wait on them hand and foot in that way. And so there's there's such intimacy and close proximity and space. And some of that's, of course, just like a surveillance, but other other parts of that are kind of familial and emotional. Um, and so I was really interested in exploring this tension between them, where in some ways Lizzie thinks of her as a friend, 
or as family, but with all the complications that comes with when you believe you own someone. Yeah, it's just, I, I think that's the thing I was really interested in, like that tension between them went to having this kind of familiar, almost kind of familiar relationship because of how long they had been together and, and in some ways stuck together too. In ways that neither of them would have predicted, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe Lizzie to a certain extent because she saw how her mother ran the house, but certainly mm-hmm. it was hard because I don't believe that Lizzie would have ever treated anyone else like Junie. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, Junie just doesn't have a choice. Lizzie could actually make better decisions and she chooses not to. <laughs> she chooses not to. <laughs> she super chooses not to. And it's that claustrophobia when, when Junie's in the house and she's with Lizzie and all of the 8 million children. Harlow's off doing Harlow things. And <laughs> the claustrophobia mm-hmm. is really intense. And the claustrophobia that the women share in the enslaved quarters too. It's this, it's mm-hmm. that balance. How did you get through the writing of this book? It's a really intense experience. Yeah, it, yeah, it is. I was definitely interested in that space. You know, like in reading historical accounts, it's like, mm-hmm. I feel like women would describe this feeling of like, you know, the loneliness and the claustrophobia and the like, the alienation of that. And I think... I think that was another thing I was interested in, the, the idea that in some ways that slavery was very lonely, like both for the enslaved and for um, mm-hmm. people that mm-hmm. people that own them. I will say, I'm not going to pretend that parts of writing this weren't very hard, but I think, because um, for sure, <laughs> yeah. for sure, um, in parts of it, it's like, what are you doing? Like, what? <laughs> like, what, 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 what are you up to here? I think especially when I would go back into some of the research and just be like, you know, sometimes I would just read something one day where I'm just like, okay, that's it for the day. <laughs> But I think I would say the women, to be honest, like I, yeah. I love them and I have such great affection for them. And I think when I was kind of done with the book and I turned in my final edits, I was so cranky and I didn't know why I was cranky. <laughs> and I think it was just because I missed them and I was so used yeah. to being with them every day and them, you know, exploring things and sharing things with me and opening up, you know, taking me in directions that I hadn't expected to go. Um, and so I, w- I would really say it was them and like and just feeling like the story felt like something important um, and felt like something worth sharing. Um, yeah, I think that kept it, kept, kept me going. There are moments of joy too. I mean, there are moments where the women do get away. And as more people move in to where this farm is, yes, there are other enslaved people, but there's a community that gets built out of that. There's dancing and dice and love and there's there's life there's actual life and it really puts it in high relief when everyone has to get back and there's a story that you and I are going to skip but someone (laughs) comes back late from a party (laughs) yes yes and there are consequences the idea that you can still have joy and you can still have hope and you can still control what you can I mean essentially any story about slavery is going to be about power and land and money and wealth and what connotes wealth and the idea that these women's bodies are going to be bred like livestock Mm -hmm. is something we should be talking about and it's something we should be looking at because that isn't that the one place that you should be able to have autonomy (laughs) like the one thing in the world like you should be able to decide what you put on in the morning and where you go and what you eat like this is the one thing that everyone has a corpus, right? Like we should be able to. And and yet many people have many feelings about all of this. And it's, it's what it is. And it's frustrating. But this book, did you write this in a linear fashion? How did this, like, I want to talk about the process piece. Cause yes, you're, you're in an MFA program, 
So yes, you're working on this, but you're also working on assignments and you're doing the research and you're figuring out the voice and there's a million things going on. But how do you end up with something that's this tiny and this tight? Because I mean, it's what, 300 something pages? It's mm -hmm. if that. Wait, yeah, about 298. Yeah, 298. <laughs> okay, so we're not even 300. And it's a mm -hmm. tiny trim, but it's an epic story. Mm -hmm. A lot happens mm -hmm. in this tiny, tiny, tightly written book, which, you know, I happen to love tiny, tiny, <laughs> tightly written books. I, I do think too. they're great. But they also do take a lot of work. They take a lot of edits. They take a lot of time. So can we talk about your process? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I mean, I would say I love short novels. Like I love um, like So Long See You Tomorrow. Um, I'm trying to think there are a couple of other short novels that I love, but I'm, I'm a big fan of like the short, powerful, like color purple, like, you know, you can almost read it in one sitting and then you're just like, wait, whoa, where was that? Um, so I love those novels. I feel like they're given a little short trip, but I do love them. I mean, I will say, I think because I had been with the story for a while and I had already had a draft that I'd thrown out and I already had a, mm -hmm. a summer of trying to write it out of order and <laughs> I had a couple of like missteps with it. Once I had got the we together and I had to like land it okay. again on like this next chapter with like the we and kind of interweaving, I went straight through and I then I would edit as I went, but I didn't overhaul really much after that point. After that, it was kind of very clear. I mean, I will say there were quotes probably another round. There was definitely a round or two in terms of editorial um, with my editor, but I don't think that draft is wildly different from mm -hmm. the draft that I sold. Yeah, so I think like I think once it kind of got very clear in terms of like okay, I think these are the things I kind of want to do. I think these are the ways I want to kind of anchor the voice. These are the other stories I think I want to tell as far as like mm -hmm. moving around in terms of some of the other like women and other characters, which I will right. as well. Um, right, right, right. <laughs> we would um, actually be giving up some serious stuff if we talk. There are a couple of people that you and I spoke about before I hit the record button. And I'm like, yeah, we can't talk about that. We can't talk. If, if people even know, and they will meet them soon enough, but if people even know, like, we have feelings. We have lots of feelings. <laughs> lots of feelings about these characters. Sure. Did the um, women show up first collectively or is it one of the women? I knew it was going to be a group. I knew I wanted okay. to explore a floor group, but I mm -hmm. but I would say Sarah came first. Okay. Can we talk about her? For sure. Um, Sarah is 17, um, kind of maybe late, almost six, whatever, maybe almost 17, I think, when the book starts. And I knew I wanted to explore the story of a young woman who hasn't experienced as much as the other women around her. Um, and so it allows her to be a little bit more naive or a little bit more hopeful in some ways. Um, it also allows her to kind of um, introduce things to us that may be unclear in terms of how things work, quote unquote. But I knew I wanted to have her experience love and then see what lens she's willing to go to keep it. And so I felt like that part was kind of super important and I think that came to me very early. And then I think the other women as it came about kind of like, in some way it's based on things I knew I wanted to explore. I wanted to explore right. motherhood. I wanted to explore motherhood in different forms. I wanted to explore midwives and healing women. Um, and so that's kind of how the cast ended up filling out and just kind of also just wanting to see a different, I just want to see different women together who survival instincts may be different. Mm -hmm. um, because I think we all know those women. We know women who were kind of like, you know, more wit, you know, who, <laughs> who kind of lead with their wit and women who were kind of super smart, but they don't say a lot. Just wanting to see, or a character like Lulu, who is one of those people who has no, you know, no filter. <laughs> no, um, she doesn't. 
<laughs> no filter at all. Yeah, I think I just wanted to see a complicated group of women um, who, you know, no one's an angel, no one's a devil. People can be selfish. People can be generous. Um, and I just want to see all the complexities and all the shades. And that, to me, was the opportunity in terms of, like, building out the group and just, like, what shade mm-hmm. haven't we seen? Like, what are the different, mm-hmm. you know, what different orientations? What kind of women do I know or, you know, that are in my family that I feel like I haven't seen on the page in a while? I really appreciated the range of age, too. I mean, mm-hmm. that everyone wasn't exactly, you know, sort of within two, <laughs> two years of each other because I do so much of what pushed the story along for me was watching the collective we navigate mm-hmm. and figuring out who was going to get the moment to lead because it, it isn't clearly one person at any given moment. There are, there are conflicts throughout and people have their own ideas of what they want to do and how they want to do it. And I love that kind of push and pull where it isn't just we're fighting the thing against us. Because in some ways, yes, that is always going to be the thing. But, you know, sometimes you're really tired of the person sitting next to you and it's hard to fight the thing that's bigger than you. You don't really like the person in the moment who's sitting next to you. And you're like, really? This is the person I have to fight with? For sure. Yeah, I think for sure. I mean, I think I was interested in like, uh, there, there are a couple of scholars who've been writing a lot about, I think sometimes the way, the way, um, enslaved communities are written about, right? They're written about this kind of like monolithic kind of flat way where because we're all in the struggle together, we necessarily get along or we're necessarily kin. And that's not necessarily true. Um, and I think it gives people more humanity and complexity to to show that people had biases and prejudices. And sometimes I don't like her because she's from, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> she's from Virginia and I don't like the way, you know, whatever. Virginia people are dumb. You know what I mean? Just people have their own, you know, Stuff, you know, even the religious kind of stuff too, right? Like, right, which I yeah. thought was a nice touch. I thought that was a really nice touch. I was not expecting patients to be Catholic. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, okay. All right, I'm going to see what happens. But, you know, she ends up having a relationship with someone who is clearly not Catholic. And yet, you know, they make a world. And there's, you know, another man who comes in and dude will eat and talk and eat and talk. He will not stop talking. <laughs> Dude will not stop talking. And part of me is like, well, I'm glad I wasn't sitting next to him talking all the time. But of course, if you're trying to remember your stories because you're not with your people, Mm -hmm. it makes perfect sense that he would do that. And it would make perfect sense that someone who doesn't know him particularly well would be like, why are you still talking? All of these things that people are doing to connect and to stay in the orbit that they were part of and ripped out of. I think, you know, we need to remember that. It's like you said, so many of these slave narratives, you know, that are written just straight records. I mean, you're sitting in a library just going through. There's no humanity there. Mm -hmm. Literally the way we described human beings as livestock is horrifying. If you've ever had access to these first person original documents, it's horrifying. And yet, it went on for years and years and years. And yes. there's a lot of that here. But the language, the language. Was poetry ever part of your reading diet before you started writing this novel? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, I love, I love, I love poetry. <laughs> yeah, I love poets. And, and, I, and, and I think and I love fiction writers who are giving us something on the sentence level. Um, mm-hmm. I, do, I do hate that. I feel like on some level that that's starting to go away a little bit. Um, yeah. And that's I, a whole nother conversation for yeah, you. Yeah, I, 
whole other conversation. Yeah, but I mean, I still, I mean, again, I mean, I mean, it's, it's probably no secret. I mean, I mean, I love Toni Morrison and I love Marilyn Robinson. Like, I love those people and I love, you know, the poets. I love, like, I feel like Nikki Finney sometimes is giving us short stories and poems. Like, yeah, for me, it's like, I, I feel like that's part of it. It's like, I know sometimes I have trouble with, you know, if I read a book where it's like, the story is great. Like a story is like, you know, movie, plot, plot, plot. But like, if there's nothing happening on the sentence level, sometimes I'm kind of like, I don't know if I can stick with this. Just because I, I feel like I need that too. Um, yeah. And so that's, yeah, for me, it's like, I, that's just what I love about both. I love the marriage of the two. I mean, for me, I need language. I need language. I mean, I read widely, obviously, for lots of different things. But at the same time, um, character, I don't need to like characters. I really don't. I need them to be who they are in the narrative. That's That's what I need. Everyone has a role, right? But in terms of language, like, I really, I need to be wowed. I really, yeah, I, I was going to not say that. And then I was like, no, actually, I really need to be wowed. I really, like, language is the thing that helps me dig in. And especially when the subject can be hard, I need the language to carry me along. Because it's the, it's the, the language that roots me in place. It's the language that roots me in time, right? And, you know, I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but a novel is an expression of time. It's an expression of the passage of time. It's great if you connect to the story and the characters and you get all of the things that you want in one book. That's great. That's amazing. Um, We all kind of hunt for that. I mean, I'm not the only person who's like, yes, I just want to fall in love with whatever I'm reading. (laughs) But I need that language. I need the language to bring me along and pull me through. There's a section where two characters are writing letters to each other. I should, well, I should say someone is writing letters to someone else. The, the letters are not being responded to. And what you do in one epistolary chapter is like, I would read an epistolary novel by <laughs> Tracy Payton. I would totally read an epistolary Because, I mean, what you do in a single chapter, and it's maybe, what, eight letters, nine letters? Yeah. And we yeah. don't even know that if the letters were actually delivered. Mm-hmm. I, will give, I will give that up because I think <laughs> readers will figure that out when they get to that section. But that switch, right? That tiny little switch to writing from one character writing letters to another character. And it's just like, oh, it comes back to that intimacy that you were talking about. All these different layers of intimacy and levels of intimacy that you're talking about in this book, depending on who is interacting with whom. And you're just like, oh. And once you had everything mapped out, and once you had the voice, and once you knew you were writing on a sentence level, did you just sit and suddenly here was this book? I mean, did it? Did you write it quickly or did, I mean, I, I realize we're talking about a, a first draft that got thrown out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Work. Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, I would say this draft was probably, because I'm not a person like, I mean, I know those people who are like, I write 3,000 words in a day. I'm not one mm. of those people. So I will say it was probably start to finish, maybe a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels fast of this particular draft maybe right, right. Uh, of the, oh yeah i would say of this particular draft mm-hmm. i would say um not the other <laughs> drafts and all the <laughs> not the other drafts prior and all the reading and stuff but yeah. um but i was i would say mm-hmm. of this draft or whatever and that of course that doesn't count like you know rounds of edits and stuff i think i started a draft in january that i think the next june or july i handed it to a friend to read that still feels quick 18 months still feels quick <laughs> It really does. Did I mention the entire world that you create in this novel? I think I did. That feels quick. That again, that's quick. Again, okay. There was a draft I wrote for like 
three, four years. Right, you know? right. right. You <laughs> just, like, on top of that. So you really yeah. sort of had a feel for where you were going. Yeah. I mean, you weren't completely yeah. punching in the dark. Okay, but now that you've turned in the manuscript, have you had a chance to do any reading for you? I mean, we've talked about influences mm-hmm. and Julia Tsuka, may you have the entire world, please. But she is the bomb. Let's just start the Julia Tsuka fan club. I'm sure we will have many more people join us. Um, but have you had a chance to read anything good for you? It's tricky because it's like I'm trying to work on other things and yeah. I am one of those horrible people that are not particularly interested in the contemporary moment and when I say that I don't mean that like I'm not interested in what's happening I just mean like Mm -hmm. I'm not particularly interested in writing about the contemporary moment I feel like maybe because we're drowning in words in terms of like you know Twitter and every newsletters and all of those things it's hard to kind of figure out like a space at least to me I've been doing a bunch of historical reading for something else I want to work on um okay this is exciting but I'm kind of at war with myself about it because I'm kind of like, do you want to spend the next two or three years reading so that you could finally write something else? Like, <laughs> It's funny. Everyone has such a different process. Um, you know, obviously I talk to a lot of writers about this and everyone yeah. has a different process. And I think it's fascinating because there are the people who are like, well, I can't read anything beyond what I'm working on in any given moment, which I totally get. I'm one of those people, though, I like to connect the dots and like have the thing take me down the rabbit hole and go, oh, wait. There was an episode I would prep for that has already aired, but it turns out I like opera more than I thought I did just because I started listening to a piece to prep that it was mentioned in something else that was mentioned in the, in the episode. And I was like, huh, turns out I'm okay. Oh, I thought I really didn't like opera for a really long time. <laughs> and I'm not saying I'm about to get a subscription or anything like that, but at the same time, it's like, oh. Okay. And I like that. I like that serendipity. I like that discovery. And, you know, opera is not necessarily for everyone, but I was like, yeah, okay. This is an interesting way to spend my morning. And it's kind of fun when you're writing a script and you've got this wild noise in the background. Okay. Fine. I mean, I will say I'm not a, I'm not a purist in that way where I know some people who are like, who feel like they can't read other things. I do read other writers while I'm while I'm writing. I will try to avoid writers who are maybe writing a similar thing, like if they're writing, you know, about the same time period or something, or if I feel, or if I feel like their voice just happens to be similar to mine, just because my fear is always that I'm going to remember something and not remember where I. <laughs> no, I got it. I, I yeah, I do get it. It is it is a tricky line to walk sometimes. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> you know, I know you and I talked about the fact that we weren't going to give really a lot away about the story because if we do it's a lot happens in this book a lot um but is there anything i missed is there anything you really wanted to talk about that we didn't get to in our sort of roundabout little way (laughs) i don't think so i mean the only thing i would probably say is for anyone who has resistance about because i because the book is about hard things and i know that like i you know i worry about asking people to sign up for that Mm -hmm. (laughs) and while the book is about kind of Heart, you know, this heart thing and this particular quote unquote power struggle. It's also to me about, you know, friendship and love and, um, and there's joy and there's, there's all these other things in the book too. And that there's care. Like, I'm not, I mean, I hope people don't feel like, you know, they're reading like unnecessary trauma or, or et cetera. So I think the only thing I would probably was, would probably want to say is that like, I hope people are not afraid of the subject matter, but it's like, it's not, it's not all dark. It's not all. <laughs> It's not all gloom. <laughs> that the voice. The voice is really extraordinary. The voice. I mean, if you just let go and let the voice carry you, it's an exceptional 
way to spend an afternoon. I mean, okay, I read a little faster than some people. But <laughs> Tracy Rose Payton, thank you so much. Night Wherever You Go is out now. It's our January 2023 Discover Pick. And everyone, I'm telling you the voice. It's the voice in this book. You need the voice in this book. Tracy, thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is great. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Port Over. And if you are a fan of Grace D. Lee's Portrait of a Thief, I have a book for you. Oh, wow, do I have a book for you. But I'm going to ask the author to introduce herself and her book because, once again, it's a very cool debut. Perini, hi, how are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I am such a, I'm such a fan, so this is really an honor. Oh, I'm thank you. Here. I'm Perini Shroff. Uh, my debut novel is The Bandit Queens. Uh, it's a dark comedy. It follows Geetha, an artisan living in a village in modern-day India. Geetha's husband disappeared five years ago. Uh, she didn't kill him, but everybody thinks she did. And when the fellow women of her microloan group come seeking Geetha's consultation services because they would like to become self-made widows themselves and dispose mm-hmm. of their own husbands. Things in events spiral and these women find themselves making choices to support and protect one another. So I'm going to quote one of your former teachers and one of my favorite writers, Elizabeth McCracken, who says, Bandit Queens is a hilarious romp about serious things. And you do that thing. You walk on that knife edge where I was laughing and I was horrified at the same time because sometimes you have to laugh at the horror, right? There's a lot happening. There are characters in this book that some were very pleasant surprises and a couple got under my skin. We're going to hold the spoiler conversation, though, for when we do the Barnes & Noble Book Club event in February. So just know that we are going spoiler free in this conversation. And so if we sound like we're dancing around stuff, yeah, we are. (laughs) We totally are. Because there's so much that happens. And before I started recording, I said to uh, Perini, I was like, there was one character who really got under my skin and we're just going to have to wait to talk about that. So there's the terrible tease. But question for you, when did you start working on this book? Because I heard some of the characters showed up like 10 years before you actually sat down to write. This story started off as a short story when I was Mm -hmm. uh, studying to get my MFA at UT in Austin. That was okay. back in 2013. Okay. Um, I had recently visited India and my father was involved in financing a microloan group in a village outside of the city where my extended family and my father and my brother at that time lived. So we took a day trip and I got to sit in on a loan meeting. Uh, oh, cool. And I, right away, I knew there was something special here. Like I felt it. I felt that energy and I didn't know what shape it would take, but I'm like, I'm writing about this meeting in some form or another. So Gita and Farah were born out of that trip. Okay. But the wider cast of characters, that didn't that world didn't develop and expand until 2020. Oh, I was in quarantine, as mm-hmm. we know were. And yeah. I returned to the short story. And as I was reading it, there was enough time had passed, there was enough distance where all of a sudden every page was an opportunity, an opportunity to expand this world and these characters and bring in these characters' histories and their motivations, their desires, the relationships and the dynamics with each other. And as I said, the larger world developed and all Mm -hmm. of a sudden it was like clear that this was a novel. Well, I was finally ready to see it as a novel. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, didn't anyone else in your circle say earlier on, like maybe you have the bones of something here or was it really just you needed to put it in a drawer and let it sit? 
Both. Uh, <laughs> my dear, my first and best reader, Arthur, uh, he's, he's, I joke that he's the reason I went to law school because we met in law school. And I think that's one of the only good things to come out of it. Okay. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You went to law school and you have an MFA and wait, you're a practicing attorney, aren't you? I am. I practice okay. uh, part-time to allow room for the writing as well. Okay. The part-time thing makes sense. Cause I had a moment where I was reading your bio and I was like, okay. Okay. <laughs> so she doesn't sleep. I don't I understand. Don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No, I sleep a lot. Uh, I love it. Arthur, as I as I mentioned, yep. my, my best friend uh, from law school, he read it very early iteration and every iteration since because he's so patient. He knew. He knew what I didn't know. He knew what he saw what I wasn't ready to see or I didn't have the the tools. Right. I I think the MFA experience is so focused on short stories. Um, and that makes sense. Like they're accessible in a way. But then as I grew as a writer, I was able to see what he knew from the jump, which is that there's a, there's more, there's more here. So I dedicated the novel's dedications to Arthur because he's a um, soothsayer. Can we talk about some of, some of your literary influences? I mean, you studied with Elizabeth McCracken and mm-hmm. Taya Obrecht, who I adore. And Christina Garcia was a teacher. Alexandra Chi wow. was a teacher. But let's talk about sort of the MFA experience for you, but also just who you read and who mm-hmm. is Part of this book in a way. I mean, because yeah. here you are. Uh, yes. Um, Zadie Smith's White Teeth yeah. has been a huge influence in like all, all my work. While this is my first, this is my debut, it's not my first manuscript. And White Teeth, I just carry it with me. Whether or not I realize it, it in the moment, because I always see it after. <laughs> but it, she, that book is, oh man, such a powerful effect on me. And I think with books, you find it at the right time. Like there are oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. And I found that book early on enough that I think it was just a, a wonderful influence. And I, I love Brit Bennett. I mm-hmm. love James McBride. I love, I obviously love Taya's work, but maybe that goes without mm-hmm. saying. I love reading my professors. But here's the thing. So Zadie and McBride, both Zadie Smith mm-hmm. and James McBride, they do what you're doing in this book. Like I can see their influence on you just sort of stylistically with that humor and the story, like you're always mm. balancing the humor and the characters and it's very sort of smart, sometimes unexpected. I mean, there were moments where I was laughing in Bandit Queens where I was like, Oh, 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 I, oh. because you pull I, it off. I mean, oh. you pull it off and in unexpected ways. I mean, also there's a lot between Gita and her friend from childhood, Solani, and they had sort of separated a little bit because Gita's terrible husband, who, you know, she may or may mm-hmm. not have done away with. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to let people find out what goes on there. But let's talk about Solani for a second, because she and Gita are the ones who really have history in the Bandit Queens, and their friendship is sort of the basis for a lot of what you're doing balancing the humor and the political points and the cultural. And then I need to ask you about Fulan Devi as well. But let's start with Gita and Solani, because I really grounded myself in their story. And then the other women sort of came into it for me. I'm so happy to hear you say that, because for me, the love story is Gita and Solani finding each other again. Yeah. And totally. reuniting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm happy to hear like the, the dark comedy aspect worked because 
you know, the, the novel does address like very serious issues such as casteism and misogyny and domestic violence. Yeah. But the source of the humor are, are Geith and Sloney and these women and their dynamics and the female camaraderie and their survival. I mean, their survival is dependent upon them finding the humor where they can, even in the horror. And I think that's realistic. That's, that's life. That's how we operate. That's how we survive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for me, focusing on that female friendship and Geith and Sloney is because of my, I'm blessed to have my own great connections with the women in my life. Yeah. And I wrote this book in 2020 on uh, quarantine when we couldn't, we couldn't see our loved ones. We couldn't see, I couldn't hop on a plane and see my friends or drive and see my friends. And so I was missing them and I'm aching for them. And I think um, that the novel was me connecting or trying to reach out and and the women in the novel became kind of my friends. And, so, and I hope they become other readers' friends too. Let's go back to 2010 for a second in the story that you'd written and you go back to revisit. Who are the characters who made it into Bandit Queens who came from that story? I mean, obviously they evolved into the characters we know now, but you had to have started with someone. I did. Uh, Gita and Farah were the, the originals, the okay. OGs, if you will. Uh, Saloni, while named, so she did exist, um, was very tertiary as a character. Mm-hmm. I think she she appeared uh, to gossip, maybe cause rifts, and then wasn't wasn't as developed as the uh, the other two. And I don't think anybody else was in the original draft. I think it was it was mainly them two either fighting or joining forces. Okay, so you've made it clear that as a reader, you're looking for voice, you're looking for, well, really it's voice, it sounds like. I mean, just given the list of writers that you really like, it's definitely voice. So for you as a writer, though, let's talk about process for a second. So you've taken the short story out of the drawer and you realize there's something more here. You're starting to work. Are you writing in a linear fashion? Are you just, are you outlining? Are you a pantser? What's going on here? I primarily write in a linear fashion simply because I don't know what's going to happen next. So I, to find out what happens next, I just got to get through it. But in writing The Bandit Queens, I will say there were moments where Gita and Saloni's voices, whether they were mm-hmm. being catty or whether they were plotting, their voices would be so loud that I just couldn't stay linear. I, and I would jump to a clean page and I would just pound out dialogue, you know, that, that back and forth. And I had no idea where this conversation took place. I had no idea where they were. There was no, really no prose. It was just getting their voices out of my head so I could go back to where I had left off and actually get some work done. So I, I think those were the only times that I jumped when I was, I knew that this dialogue, this interaction would take place. I just didn't know when I would get there. I jumped a little bit ahead because I've been so looking forward to this conversation, but I want to go back to the title for a second. Mm. The Bandit Queens, because there is a real life reference that you work in through Gita, and not just because everyone's sort of treating her like, you know, she's this nefarious creature. But let's talk about the inspiration behind the title for a second. Um, the original Bandit Queen, um, she was born Pulan Mala, but then later named Pulan Baby. She was born in a village in India, um, lower caste, technically, like literally outcast because she was born a Dalit woman. And right away, it was clear that Poulin was an irrepressible spirit. I mean, at the age of 10, she staged her first act of protest. That's how extraordinary she was. 
And probably why her parents married her off at a very young age to a much older man. She was 11. He was 33. And he was abusive and she ran away multiple times before ultimately joining a gang. And when she joined the gang, she committed and was subjected to a series of horrific crimes. And she was ultimately jailed. And upon her release, she then became a female rights activist and politician uh, before her assassination at the age of 37. So this is such an extraordinary life. And when I was writing uh, The Bandit Queens and developing Geetha's character, Geetha starts off in the novel as such a point of isolation and loneliness because she's ostracized in the village because of this reputation for being a murderess. And I thought when when you're in that place, when you're that lonely, you got to pull from a power source greater than yourself. And it became apparent that for Gita, this legend, this myth of the bandit queen would be her power source to get out of bed, to, to put on that face and walk in the, down the village, through the village with her head held high. And I was initially wary. I was reluctant to title the book The Bandit Queens because while the book is an homage to Pula mm-hmm. Baby in many ways, I was worried about exploiting her. I didn't, I didn't want to take her name for my own agenda. I wanted to draw attention and awareness to her story. But yes, I, I was just reluctant. But I'm so happy with the pluralization. It becomes kind of a call almost to standing up, to to joining forces, to maybe take down the patriarchy, to say this isn't right in in small acts of protest or larger acts of protest. And I, I, I'm ultimately so happy that we did title it the Bandit mm-hmm. Queens. And I think it's, I think it works. Well, and I think too, and it definitely works. <laughs> Having read the book, it definitely works. But Good. having seen how your characters interact with each other, I mean, these women they're all sort of very distinct. They all have their own, I'm going to call them behavioral tics for the moment. So I don't give anything away. Um, but I'm thinking of just a couple of interactions where one character has pretended to sort of be one kind of person and then reveals herself to be an entirely different kind of person. That was kind of interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them do have their sort of quirks, but they're all willing to cross the line as they need to, which I really appreciated because they were all kind of like, well, we're done living this way. And the men are really problematic. And as you sort of reveal through more the characters respond, more the women's responses to what's happening around them, rather than just sort of, you know, laying out, this is where we're going in the story. It was a really clever way to do your reveals. So did anything surprise you while you were writing Bandit Queens? Yes. Okay. A lot of my characters' decisions felt like I was no longer in the driver's seat. Okay. I, and I know, you know, spoiler free. So yeah. Say yep. anything, but there are, there are many moments with their actions and their decisions. Mm-hmm. I would write and I would think, what's happening? Like <laughs> I'm creating a mess. I'm creating a mess here. And how am I going to extricate myself? Because you know, like it's a contract of sorts, right? Like writing and, and readership, like you invested in this story and these characters. And I, it is my, my end of the bargain is to give you a satisfying ending is to, is to yeah. maybe t- clean up this mess and, and pull all these strings that I've been holding together and make it an enjoyable experience for you, uh, you the reader. And I was just, these characters were misbehaving and they weren't doing anything I thought they were going to do. And I was like, you're making a mess for me to clean up. 
Gita, Saloni. But but they were themselves unabashedly yeah. so. And I'm very grateful that, that, that they, I don't know, didn't obey me. How much of a rewrite did you have to work on after you did the first draft? Once you knew it was a novel, once you got the novel down, once you had all of the parts and the people, mm-hmm. I mean, how much work went into that? The first draft really fell out of me in a way that I don't take for granted just because I've been been writing for a long time and it is not like that. This was, I don't know, it feels almost like a windfall. It fell out of me and stayed pretty much like there might be laser edits, line edits, shortening, tightening, but it stayed pretty true like from that initial form to the final form. I will say what took the longest, the last, the ending, the last two chapters took as long as the rest of the book did. To, to oh, write. interesting. Okay. Yeah. And it goes back to what I said about creating a mess and a satisfying ending yeah. and like the yeah. obligation you have um, to read her. And I was, that's what the, the greatest pains and, you know, it takes a village and I had so much help, like from Arthur, my dear friend who I mentioned to my agent and my editors and my friends who took the time to read like so many eyes were necessary for me to ultimately conclude these events and these characters and, and give everybody, I don't know, their, their just ending. So you needed a community of your own to write about a community. No, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. I see how this works. Yeah. I see yeah. how this works for you. So you write this in what, the span of a year? I mean, the first draft? Correct. Did it even take a year? It took about a year and a few months because of okay. the ending and even then the ending wasn't right but at least I felt comfortable um submitting it you could show it to people yeah it was it right. was a thing that you exactly. could show to people exactly okay. but the bulk of it yeah it took I think less than a year because you have this great line in your author's note that I really 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 appreciate and you say fiction is where research meets compassion often facts don't change people's minds but stories do And, you know, again, we've been sort of touching on some big stuff that happens. Yes, the domestic violence and the cast Mm. and the class and all. There's a lot going on, which I really appreciate. But at the same time, you never lose sight of your story. So I'm a little amazed to hear you say that the the last two chapters were bumpy for you as the writer, because I was like, well, y'all fixed it in the edit. (laughs) (laughs) You fixed it in the edit. Oh, I'm very happy to hear that. How much research... I mean, obviously, you live in the Bay Area. You went to school in Texas. Like, you went yeah. to visit your dad and your brother in India. Mm-hmm. But how much can you really absorb in sort of a family trip? I mean, a lot of this has been sort of in the back of your brain for a long time, is what I'm sort of suggesting. Yes, a, a very long time. And I will say that research that I have done, historical research and research in modern day life in India and mm-hmm. observations, like I researched many things for other manuscripts and other projects. And so it's been percolating. You know, probably my whole whole life, but I can right. point to, you know, various sources of research that I did for other projects that, by the time I wrote this, they were they were already there. I just had it at my fingertips, and it and it came out. My father and my brother uh, live in India, and mm-hmm. so I, growing up, my winters, my winter and my summer vacations were spent in India. So I was spending like mm-hmm. maybe four months a year mm-hmm. in India, and the sights and the smells, I think stay with me. And in, in during the pandemic 2020, that was like quarantine was the longest time that I didn't go to India. And I remember watching writing this book and I was like, I need 
I need some visuals. And so I put on a, uh, there's an Amazon prime show that takes place in a village. And, uh, I just watched, I watched that show. It sparked so many things. I immediately went to my laptop and I was like, and this is, and this is a smell and this is a taste and this is this. And it just re refreshed and reinvigorated everything. And I like, it filled in the world. As I mentioned, it filled in the world. And uh, my, my fiance, I remember, uh, walked in when I was watching the show and he's like, oh, I thought you were writing today. And I was like, I am working. <laughs> this is research. How dare you? And he just made an innocuous comment. And I just was like, like clutched my pearls aghast. Um, how dare you? But yes, yeah, so that I, all these things helped frame where, where I was coming from when I like sat down to write. Yeah, I have to say, I had a moment very early in the story where I needed to orient myself in time. And just because I'm really unfamiliar with the rural life in India yeah. and Gujarat, I don't know. Can we explain yeah. to listeners where Gujarat in, is in India? I mean, folks are, yeah. I think, familiar with Delhi and Mumbai, but I think it's harder to place Gujarat for some folks. You're right. So uh, Gujarat is northwest. It's ah, there we go. northwest in India. Mumbai is an hour south by by flight. The village is is fictional. It's sort of a composite of, of many places I've been. But the village that I visited was mm-hmm. about forty kilometers uh, south of Ahmedabad, mm-hmm. which in Ahmedabad is the city, the the capital and the city in India okay. where my family lives. A refrigerator plays into this story in a way that. I absolutely understand, but I had a moment of like, okay, where am I? And then it's very quickly made clear where we are in time. Again, it's just my Americanness coming through and being like, I have no idea where I am in the second, but it's just, you did a very clever thing. I did? Yeah. Me? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But you did a very, very clever thing, establishing space and time. And I mean, the microloans certainly give me an idea that it's present day, but I was still like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Again, just because the reality of these women's lives is so different from anything you or I might experience Mm -hmm. on a daily basis. And yet the female friendships and the bad marriages and the the day-to-day concerns, you know, that's all that classic kind of finding the details of your own life and someone else's kind of thing, Mm -hmm. no matter how radical it is. But what did writing Bandit Queens teach you? Bandit Queens taught me that I was pretty silly in my 20s <laughs> because even Gita and, and Saloni, they, they lose each other around the time that they're 19 because of the insertion of, the, of Gita's terrible husband. And to a lesser extent, I think in, my, in many views, including my own, um, we maybe sacrifice or pay less attention to our friendships in the pursuit of this like idea or notion of the one or this romantic relationship. And I regret to say that I was, I was guilty of the same in my twenties, but in writing the bandit Queens, it made me so grateful for the friendships that I called onto a little sad for the ones I hadn't managed to. And the female friendships that they made in this book, they make anything possible. It's not just a betterment of lives. And I know in the book, we take it to extremes because mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's murder and there's crimes. But in day to day, they make anything possible. How we, mm-hmm. Friendships are they're how we, they're magical. They're how we get through everything. They're how we survive. They're, they make anything possible. And 
I think in writing this and and having the the rifts of the female friendship and the reunions, mm-hmm. I think I was examining maybe some of my mistakes, but also what I have mm-hmm. and what I treasure. I think that's what I learned. I hope. I really appreciate novels about friendship, and there don't seem to be as many as you would think. I mean, obviously, people are always writing about their families. They're always writing about sort of their family's plays in the world. But mm-hmm. friendship, I mean, Gary uh, Steingart did it in Our mm-hmm. Country Friends, obviously, and Alice Elliott Dark's Fellowship Point. There's some great, great, great recent novels about friendship. that, mm-hmm. um, And Grace Lee even does it in Portrait of a yeah. Thief as well. Like, she's really writing about sort of friendship as well as mm-hmm what these kids are doing, much like your women, (laughs) (laughs) much like your women in Bandit Queens. Because the thing that I really appreciated about their dynamic too, is it was so organic. I mean, they would fight and then they would find a way to get over it because honestly, in the end, like you said, anything is possible when they have their friendship, you know, this idea that marriage will save you, which (laughs) it is not the 16th century. Like, why are we still having these conversations? And yet we are, we are Mm -hmm. completely. And it's like, well, you know, you do suggest at one point too, that the men are a little intimidated by the micro loans because only women can get them. It's designed Mm -hmm. to help folks who need it the most. And the men are kind of like, well, why can't I have X, Y, and Z? And, you know, I'm specifically thinking of a character we can't really talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Oh, no, in February, we, all of this will be laid out. All, all of this will be laid out. But did you know that you had to have sort of the spine of all of the hard stuff in order to make the fun stuff work? Or did the fun stuff come first and you thought, oh, well, wait a minute, what am I really talking about here? The, the hard stuff definitely um, mm-hmm. came first. It, it, right. In the short story iteration, it was, it, was not, it was not humorous. It was more about money. Actually, in the short story, I thought I was really writing about money. And I was like, that's interesting. Women and money. That's Yeah. And the money is still there. Um, and the economic aspect of it and the entrepreneurship is still there. But the comedy came um, probably because I needed comedy in 2020. I needed some levity. And in the, in the dark pandemic, I was rewatching The Golden Girls, which is one of my favorite shows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I had been watching it at that time too, in 2020. But in rewatching it, I realized what an indirect source of inspiration those female friendships, those four women had on the novel and the dynamics between the women in the Bandit Queens. Um, because they are savage with each other. Like they have these cutthroat barbs where, because they're comfortable doing it because they know that they are each other's second families. Like there's mm-hmm. no... They're not going to lose each other. They're in it. And in rewatching that show, I was like, oh, this is, this is a huge source of inspiration for the comedy. Where it's like, ah, they can, while battling abusive husbands right. and the police and whatnot, they can be comedic with each other. They can have the banter. And that, then I, I didn't even realize what I was doing with the, whole, with the dark comedy. I didn't realize that this could work as I was writing mm-hmm. I was thinking you can't you can't do this Franny you can't make you can't have jokes as you're discussing topics such as caste and misogyny like it's not it's it's irreverent but I kept going because I didn't mm-hmm. have anything else to do to my surprise it it did work and I realized oh to keep from collapsing under the weight of these issues the, the humor is not only is essential but it's also realistic because as we mentioned there's comedy in life there's comedy in the, in the horror it's how we deal. It's how many of us process. 
It's totally how I process. I mean, yeah. I I would much rather laugh at horrible things than not. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. the idea of being sort of backed into a corner and not being able to get out. But humor somehow, if you can see the ugly and, and laugh at it, it's just mm-hmm. it's a little easier to push past it and find the next thing, as it were. Mm-hmm. And absolutely watching Gita evolve and open up with these women um the Gita we meet versus you know who we see at the end she's pretty great she's pretty I I have to say she's uh I'm a little attached to her (laughs) I'm so happy to hear that is Gita your favorite though I don't know if she's your favorite character yeah okay can we talk about that for a second sure why is Salona your favorite she has the confidence I wish I had and I mm-hmm. think she's my favorite because of she's these things that I'm not. And, mm-hmm. you know, you see your best friend and you wish your best friend saw themselves the way you see them because you see this like vibrant, perfect individual who can just do anything and is so smart. I see that in, in, in Saloni and I'm just like, I'm not her, but I wish I could be more like her. And, and I just, she's, she's irrepressible. She's so confident. She knows herself. She knows herself and she's unapologetic about it. And she is such an alpha that I am <laughs> in awe of the way she commands. Like, I think it's very early on that Saloni commands an audience. Mm-hmm. She can mm-hmm. work a room. And she also is not above manipulating the men around her to get what she wants. But that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that she's simpering. It means that she's playing the game. Mm-hmm. And I, I really admi- I admire her. Do you have a favorite moment from the book that we can actually talk about now? Or do we have to save that all until February? We might have to save that until February. I mean. Um, yeah, I think my favorite moments come in the second, probably in the, my most favorite moments probably come in the second half, which we. Okay. So we super talk can't about. talk about We yeah. super can't talk about that. I will say um, yeah. I did enjoy Bandit the dog. <laughs> oh, good. Yes. I will give you props for Bandit. Um, you know, Gita rescues a dog that has quite a lot of personality. And I think the dog is part of how she becomes sort of a more open person. Let's put it that way. And, and the fact that it's her female friendships and this dog. And then, yeah, she meets a nice man and we'll see what happens. But, you know, yeah. he's a nice touch. Although, should I say she? she. <laughs> Spoiler. Um, you know, we find out more about the dog. I'm okay sharing bits about the dog. It's okay. The dog, yeah. Gita being open to the dog because she's very resistant to adopting yeah, oh, completely. the dog. Like she's fine sailing. Completely. She's very resistant to adopting the dog and actually having mm-hmm. the dog in in the home. But her begrudging willingness to okay, I'm, I'm gonna you can stay for a day. Okay, you can stay for a week. Yeah, the begrudging willingness it parallels her begrudging willingness to let the women into her life as well. She's been alone for so long that she thinks she's hard. She mm-hmm. thinks she's um has a shell and it's simply not true. It's in the minute she has a, like an openness to other people, she blooms. I think she really is more of herself and maybe even more of the person that she was before her marriage. Yeah. Second chance stories are fun. And I would say Gita gets a big old second chance. Yeah. <laughs> big old second chance in this book. Yeah. And it's always nice to see the evolution of characters. And like I said, I've been hinting at this character that really got under my skin, whose evolution was not necessarily the one I was expecting, but perfectly fits the character. Whereas, you know, Gita has sort of this classic, like, things are not good. And yet, I'm going to figure out how to make things better, which, you know, who doesn't love a happy ending? 
But I have a question for you. What's next? I mean, here you are practicing law part-time, which I'm glad to hear part-time because seriously, I was like, how are you a lawyer and writing novels? Like, what is going on here? But what is next? I mean, how does the writing fit in with your day-to-day work life? I'm very fortunate to work mm-hmm. part-time and to have a very uh, malleable schedule. Um, mm-hmm. It's I used to litigate and it was it was impossible for, for me to have any sort of balance, but now I do a different, I do, thankfully I practice a different type of law, which has a lot more flexibility and allows me to write and allows me to pay my bills and, you know, stay fed and all that with the, I'm working on a new novel right now. And I will say that it's uh it's a bit slower, but not because necessarily of my day job it's a bit slower because you know there's so much stuff happening with, with the band of queens and it's right. um, hard to go back and forth between the worlds mm-hmm. yeah. um you know writing and thinking about the band of queens and reflecting on it um and then saying okay now i'm putting on this different hat and entering this completely different uh character voice world time period all of it and so for that reason it is slow going um but i'm trying to just not have any expectations of myself. It's like, it'll take as long as it takes and that's fine. We can be patient. I say that a lot. We can be patient. Can I ask you about this eat my own salt line? Gita frequently says, you know, I just want to eat my own salt. And I think I understand what it means, but yeah. Can you just let me know? Yeah. In India, there's, it's an idiom. And the idea is that women go from eating their father's salt, like in their father's home, Mm -hmm. taken care of by their, the the patriarch there. And then they are the burden of their husbands and their in-laws. And they eat their salt. They have no the idea of like, you know, having my own money, my own independence, my own salt, my food. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I, I did a play on that expression to mean independence. Which feels like a really good place to end the interview. Because again, we don't want to give anything away. <laughs> this is really uh, just everyone should just join us at the BNN Book Club event in February because oh, we are, yeah. there will be so much more revealed in all of it. But they should read, everyone should read the book first because it really, you do a very, very nice job of balancing like the big issue stuff with your great characters who occasionally are very wildly funny. There's some stuff that happens in a police station where you're like, <laughs> all yeah. of this is wild. And that's all we can say. That's really all we can say. Karini Shroff, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Bandit Queens is our January 2023. How is it 2023? I don't even understand. 2023 Barnes & Noble Book Club pick, and we're doing the event in February. So check us out online, bn.com, for all the event details. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.